Chapter Five, Part One of Rocks and Their Origins by Grenville A. J. Cole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Igneous Rocks, Part One. Introduction. Igneous rocks, those various masses that have consolidated from a state of fusion, attracted attention in the eighteenth century through their active appearance in volcanoes. James Hutton, in 1785, showed that the crystalline granite of the Scottish Highlands had been made to invade that country in a fluid state. More than a hundred years, however, elapsed before geologists on the continent of Europe were willing to connect superficial lavas with the materials exposed by denudation in consolidated cauldrons of the crust. It is interesting, therefore, to note that G. P. Scrope, in 1825, treated of granite, without apology or hesitation, in a work entitled Considerations on Volcanoes. So far from separating deep-seated from superficial products, Scrope wrote of the molten magma in the crust as the general subterranean bed of lava. He conceived this fundamental magma, the original or mother rock, to be capable of consolidating as ordinary granite. Successive meltings and physical modifications of this granite gave rise, in his view, to all the other igneous rocks. Scrope laid no stress, however, on chemical variations within the magma, but urged that the transitions observable between different types of igneous material established a community of origin. The connection between lavas and highly crystalline deep-seated rocks, so simply accepted by Scrope, was worked out some fifty years later by J. W. Judd for areas in Hungary and in the Inner Hebrides. The features displayed in thin sections under the microscope were used by Judd in a series of papers to substantiate his views, but in France and Germany these features became the source of subtle distinctions between the igneous rocks of Cainozoic and Precainozoic days. The lavas in which some glassy material could be traced were said to be typically post-Cretaceous, and essentially different from those earlier types in which glass was replaced by finely crystalline matter, while the coarsely crystalline igneous rocks were uniformly regarded as Precainozoic. Glassy rocks, such as pitchstone, interbedded contemporaneously in Permian or Devonian strata, were described as vitreous porphyries, while those known to be of post-Cretaceous date might be styled andesites, trachytes, or rhyolites. Luckily, common sense has recently triumphed in this matter, and the relative scarcity of glassy types of igneous rocks in early geological formations has been recognized as due to the readiness with which glass undergoes secondary crystallization. The discussion has ended by showing that we have no evidence of worldwide changes in the types of material erupted during geological time. At the present day, attention has been focused on the processes that go on in subterranean cauldrons, in the hope of explaining the differences between one type of extruded rock and another. Doctrines of descent have been elaborated, and one of the most subtle systems of classifications has been based upon characters that the igneous rock might have possessed, had circumstances not imparted others to it during the process of consolidation. The principle of this classification is, however, obviously correct. If we wish to trace back a rock bearing certain characters at the present day to the molten source from which it came. Characters of Igneous Rocks The characters of igneous rocks vary considerably, according as they have consolidated under atmospheric pressure only, or under that of superincumbent rocks. We must remember also that submarine lavas have to sustain a pressure of an extra atmosphere for every 30 feet of depth, or 400 atmospheres at 2,000 fathoms, and that such rocks have a claim to be regarded as deep-seated. The gases that igneous rocks contain, probably as essential features of the molten magma, and at temperature above their critical points, 
escape to a large extent near or at the surface of the earth. The bubbles raised in lava, whereby it is rendered scoriaceous, and the clouds of vapor rising from cooling lava flows and from the throat of a volcano in eruption, are sufficient evidences of this process. The extremely liquid lavas of Kilauea and Hawaii, which emit very little vapor, are notable as exceptions. In the case of masses that cool underground, the retention of gases, and ultimately of liquids, until a very late stage of consolidation, retards crystallization until temperatures are reached lower than those at which it starts in surface flows. As A. Harker points out, the loss of these substances, by raising the melting points in the magma, may be the immediate cause of crystallization, quite as much as any actual cooling. The formation of crystals in lavas is rapid, and the average crystals are therefore small, and often felted together in a mesh, the interstices of which are filled by residual glass. Long maintenance of the temperature appropriate to the growth of the mineral species is the important factor that affects the size of the crystals. Pressure may promote crystallization by raising the melting points of minerals, but after a certain maximum effect in this direction, it is quite possible that an increase of pressure may actually lower the melting points and cause one or other mineral to remain in solution in the magma. It is not clear how pressure can affect the size of any constituent, except by bringing about conditions under which it can go on growing, while other constituents remain in solution, or do not grow so fast. Such conditions may arise from the aid given by pressure to the retention of what French geologists have called agent mineralisateurs. Several familiar minerals, for instance albite, orthoclase, and quartz, require the presence of water for their formation. Volatile substances, not utilized in the ultimate product, no doubt similarly assist in the formation of many rock-forming minerals. Occasionally, moreover, as in the development of micas and certain of the silicates known as zeolites, some proportion of hydrogen is retained by minerals, thus crystallizing from the magma. Micas appear to require the presence of fluorine for their development. J. P. Iddings, however, lays stress in this case on the chemical activity of hydrogen at high temperatures. Igneous rocks, unless cooled with singular rapidity, thus contain crystals of various kinds. In lavas, these may form the globular aggregates known as spherulites, or may accumulate as a compact ground of minute grains and needles, not quite resolvable with the microscope. In many rocks of slightly coarser grain, a compact lithoidal or stony texture is set up, which the microscope resolves into an aggregate of crystalline rods or granules. Such compact rocks are often styled felsitic. In other types, as in ordinary granite, the constituent minerals are easily distinguished with the naked eye. The order in which these constituents have developed is sometimes clear from the inclusion of one mineral in another. When two substances are dissolved in one another, there is a certain proportion between them, varying with the substances, which allows them to crystallize at the same time, instead of in succession. This eutectic proportion, when attained by two mineral substances in a magma, brings about a complete interlocking of their crystals, as seen in the quartz and alkali felspar of the rock known as graphic granite. The order of crystallization of minerals from an ordinary non-eutectic magma is profoundly affected by the proportions in which their constituents are present in the mass. The minerals, when they have separated out, are found to be mostly silicates. A few oxides, such as rutile, magnetite, and ilmenite, may occur, the two latter being especially common where iron is an important constituent of the rock but almost all igneous rocks consist largely of one or more species of felspar, silica being here combined with alumina, potash, soda, and lime. 
Free silica may remain and separates as quartz, or rarely as tritomite. Pale mica occurs in many rocks of deep-seated origin. In contrast with these light-colored minerals, iron, magnesium, and part of the calcium appear in another series of silicates, usually dark in color, and this series may be broadly styled ferromagnesian. The pyroxenes, of which augite is the type, the amphiboles, of which hornblende is the type, dark mica, mostly biotite, and olivine, are the ordinary ferromagnesian minerals. Broadly, then, igneous rocks divide themselves by texture into one, those which are completely crystalline, and in which the minerals are distinctly visible, two, those which are completely crystalline, but in which the crystals are so small as to give rise to a compact, lithoidal ground mass, and three, those in which some glass is present. The third group may appear lithoidal, or in other cases actually glassy, to the unaided eye. This mode of division is justified from a natural history point of view. The first group includes rocks that have consolidated slowly underground. The second includes rocks cooled more quickly, on the margins of magma basins, or as offshoots from them, filling cracks in the surrounding rocks, and producing wall-like masses known as dikes. The third group appears mostly in dikes and lava flows. Where a dike has intruded among heated rocks and undergoes no sudden chilling, it may become coarsely crystalline, even though comparatively small. Some dikes exhibit a chilled margin of glass along their bounding surfaces, and are, nonetheless, completely crystalline at the center, where cooling has been slow. No structure is peculiar to dike rocks, nor can a class be established for such rocks on chemical or mineralogical grounds, even though a few special types of igneous rock may at present be known only among these minor intrusive bodies. The fine-grained layers of volcanic dust, commonly spoken of as ash, and the coarser tufts in which lumps of scoriaceous lava are clearly visible, bridge the gap between sedimentary and igneous rocks. The dust, during a great eruption, is distributed by wind over hundreds of square miles of country. The tufts, deposited nearer the orifice of the volcano, vary in coarseness from day to day, and exhibit marked stratification. Ash beds and tufts may be laid out in lakes or in the sea, and their layers may then include organic remains. Waves may round their particles on the shore, and may sift them to only a coarse volcanic sand remains. After an eruption, the newly deposited ash and tuff usually form obvious layers on the surface of the country. Landslips on the side of the volcanic cone may reveal sections of the new coating and of the previously stratified material. In certain districts, sedimentary and other rocks, torn off from below, form a large part of the fragmental deposits of volcanic action. The characteristic volcanic cone is itself due to the greater accumulation of tufts and ashes near the vent. The loose tufts formed of scoriae allow water to percolate easily through them, and a cone of fairly coarse material resists the weather well. The remarkable freshness of the extinct cinder cones of Auvergne was long ago thus explained by Lyell. Surfaces of ash, on the other hand, are easily washed down by rain in the form of dangerous mud flows which spread across the lowlands and give rise to compact clays shrinking as they dry. Lava flows are masses of molten rock that have welled out from the vent without being torn to pieces by the explosion of the gases that they contained. The rapidity of their flow depends on their chemical composition, on the amount of gases present, and on the temperature at which they are extruded. The more highly siliceous lavas, for a given temperature, are more viscous than those toward the basaltic end of the series, which contain only about 48% of silica. 
a lava of considerable fluidity will consolidate in somewhat thin sheets with smooth and ropy surfaces. A less fluid type will become markedly scoriaceous, where the vapors endeavor to escape from it. The rugged crust formed on its upper cooling surface will be broken up by the continued movement of the more liquid mass below, and the blocks thus formed may become rolled over the advancing front of the flow and entombed in the portion that has not yet consolidated. The surface of ordinary lava flows remains rough for centuries, and only slowly crumbles down before weathering to form a soil. While tough beds provide light in fertile lands, the lava streams remain marked out among them as sinuous bands of rock, given over to an irregular growth of woodland. By repeated outflows, lavas tend to fill up the interspaces between the earlier streams, just as these have filled up the hollows in the country over which they spread. A uniform surface thus arises, and lava plains eventually bury a varied land of hill and dale. Where a number of small vents have opened, perhaps along parallel fissures in the earth, the flooding of the country with igneous rock may lead to an appearance of stratification in masses extending over hundreds of square miles. Sections of the igneous series, however, show that the individual flows dovetail into and overlap one another more rapidly than is the case with the lenticular masses that constitute an ordinary sedimentary series. After the constituents of the lava have begun to crystallize, and when the rock may be considered solid, cracks due to contraction are set up. The upper part of the flow, radiating its heat and parting with its gases into the air above, solidifies comparatively rapidly, and cracks arise without much regularity. Now and then, columnar structure, like that of dried starch, appears on a small scale, the columns starting from various oblique surfaces of cooling and lying, in consequence, in various directions in the rock. J. P. Itting shows that curvature of the columns will result if one portion of the surface loses heat more rapidly than another. As the contraction cracks bounding the columns spread inwards, the layer reached by them at any time in the lava will be farther in from a part of the surface where cooling is rapid than it will be from a part where it is slow. Hence the layer in the lava where contractional stresses are producing cracks, that is, the layer reached at any time by the inner ends of the contraction columns, will be a curved one, and its curvature will increase as it occupies positions more and more removed from the surface of the lava flow. The axes of the contraction columns, as they spread, are perpendicular to this layer, and the columns will thus curve as their development proceeds. The base of a massive lava flow, however, cools under much more uniform conditions, and the columns, stretching upwards from the ground and produced by slow contraction, give rise to the regular prismatic structures long ago known as Giant's Causeways. The original Giant's Causeway, in the country of Antrim, is the lower part of a basaltic flow, exposed by denudation on the shore. Fingal's cave in Staffa owes its tough, compact roof to the preservation of that portion of the flow which cooled downwards from the upper surface. G. P. Scrope long ago observed this dual structure in columnar lavas. The columns, or the more irregular joint blocks that sometimes represent them, are often subdivided by further contraction into spheroids, the coats of which peel off as the rock weathers, like those of an onion. The curved cross-joints of massive columns, now convex upwards, now concave, represent the same tendency towards globular contraction. A lava flow is sometimes divided into large, rudely spheroidal masses, which fit into one another, and which show signs of more rapid cooling on their surfaces. These were particularly observed on the mountains near Mount Genevere 
by cole and gregory who compared the forms to pillows or soft cushions pressed upon and against one another it was suggested that these forms were produced by the seething of viscid lavas masses being heaved up and falling over and the outer layers having time to cool in a glassy state before they were deformed by contact with others this pillow structure has been widely recognized and j j h teal has remarked how often pillow lavas are associated with radiolarian cherts he regarded them therefore as of submarine origin sir a geeky moreover stated that the spheroidal sac-like structure was produced by the flow of such lavas into water or watery silt this acute suggestion has now been verified by tempest anderson who has observed in samoa the chilling of the lobes of lava as they are thrust off into the sea and washed over by the waves h dewey and j s flett have pointed out that pillow structure commonly occurs in lavas in which there has been a conversion of lime soda felspars into albite a change frequent in a series of rocks which they call the spilitic suite the importation of soda is attributed to vapors entering soon after the consolidation of the rock and it is urged that any excess of sodium silicate must have escaped into sea-water in which the pillow lavas were produced hence radiolaria will flourish in the neighbourhood presuming that a decomposition of the silicate can be brought about and their remains will in time form flint in the hollows of the lava the paper quoted contains numerous references to previous work and is a suggestive example of how petrographic study may go hand in hand with the appreciation of rocks from a natural history point of view it is only characteristic of the subject of petrology that g steinman has with equal ingenuity explained the relations between radiolaria and spilitic lavas by reminding us that gravity determinations show an excess of basic material under the oceans and of lighter material rich in silica under continental land hence when deep-sea deposits are crumpled by earth movements basic types of rock graduating even into serpentine become associated with radiolarian chert partly as extruded lavas but usually as intrusive sheets injected at the epoch of mountain building the characters of igneous rocks in dikes that is of those types that have consolidated in fissures resemble in many respects the characters of lava flows chilling being usually equal on both surfaces glassy or compact types of rock occur on both sides and the dike is as previously observed more crystalline in the centre columnar structures arise from both surfaces the dike also shrinking parallel to its margins in the outer layer so formed the columns are small and they increase in diameter nearer the centre in small dikes and veins the columns may run continuously from side to side in larger ones they meet along a central surface which forms on weathering a plane of weakness in the rock dikes may thus become worn away decay spreading from the central region and leaving the more resisting and more glassy portions clinging to the bounding walls where however the surrounding rocks are more easily worn away than the igneous invader as very often happens the dikes stand out on the surface as great ribs and walls the rocks cooled in the deep-seated cauldrons under what are styled plutonic conditions have parted with their gases so slowly that they do not show scoriaceous structure they may become very coarsely crystalline like many of the scandinavian granites minerals moreover may be produced which are unstable or difficult to form nearer the surface crystals developed in plutonic surroundings become carried forward when the partially consolidated mass is pressed up to a volcanic orifice and may undergo resorption on the way many however escape 
and impart a porphyritic structure to lavas. The deep-seated rock, from causes that promote the growth of one mineral and the retention of another in solution, may also become porphyritic in situ, smaller crystals or even a eutectic intergrowth finely filling in the ground. The vicinity of igneous rocks may cause any of the types to show a fluidal structure. Constituents already formed become dragged along in parallel series as the mass moves forward. Sometimes a group of spherulites, or a knot of felsitic matter caused by the dense growth of embryo crystals, is stretched out into a sheet, and on fractured surfaces a banded structure characterizes the mass. These banded rocks record, in their crumpled and obviously fluidal layers, the formerly molten condition of the mass. Even completely crystalline rocks may show parallel arrangement of their minerals, owing to flow during the last stages of consolidation, or to pressure from the walls of the cauldron, influencing the positions taken up by crystals that possess a rod-like or platy form. The conspicuously banded structures in some crystalline rocks that are often grouped with the metamorphic gneisses may, however, be best explained by their composite origin, and the history of the structure is easily determinable in the field. A common case arises where a granite magma, perhaps already bearing crystals, is intruded, under pressure operating from a distance, into a well-bedded series of sedimentary rocks. The sediments open up like the leaves of a book, and admit the invader along their planes of stratification. Even limestone may thus become interlaminated with an igneous rock, and basalt has been known to separate the annual rings of trees involved in it. This intimate admixture permits of extensive mineral changes, and the two types of rock, probably very different in geological age, become welded together in a composite gneiss, both members of which have influenced one another by contact metamorphism, often across a wide stretch of country. Intrusive igneous rocks in the field will, however, ordinarily prove their character by cutting somewhere across the prevalent structure of the district. When the materials that elsewhere form dikes penetrate between strata for considerable distances as intrusive sheets, they may yet be traced to some point where they have made use of a crack across the bedding. The necks or plugs of old volcanic centers sometimes seem to occupy orifices drilled, or rather shattered, by explosion right through the overlying obstacles. The approximately circular necks in South Africa, filled by brecciated masses of serpentinous rock, are notable examples. The underground cauldrons themselves, when brought to light by denudation, are represented by regions of crystalline rock, which may have various relations to their surroundings. We may trace, in every case, upon their margins, the ramifying veins that first proved to James Hutton that granite was younger than the rocks among which it lay. But the portion exposed may be merely the top of a huge body or batholite of igneous matter, stretching far down into the crust, or it may be part of a localized knot, which filled up some cavity provided for it by earth movement, oozing in step by step as room was made for its advance. In the latter case, it was originally bounded above by some series of strata which was arched up as a dome or as an anticline. Or possibly strata have been moved apart from one another, the upper ones sliding over the lower ones, and at the same time bulging upwards, so as to leave a cavity of roughly hemispherical form. Such a space, allowing relief from pressure, will be occupied by igneous rock, which may or may not have a direct route through the stratum underneath it. The igneous mass may in such cases be merely an expansion of a large intrusive sheet. It sends off veins into the roof above, and can only be distinguished from a batholite 
by the presence of stratified rock beneath it. Occurrences of this kind were first described in the Henry Mountains of Utah by G. K. Gilbert, who gave them the name of stone cisterns or lacoliths, a word now commonly written lacolites. It may be questioned if the expansion of the gases in the intruding igneous rock is sufficient in itself to form the lacolitic dome. The igneous rock has probably been pressed into position by the forces that produce the earth movements. In many cases, batholites seem to have worked their way upwards without any relation to earth movements in the district. The processes by which they come into place among other rocks are worthy of separate consideration. End of Part 1 of Chapter 5